Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast presented by University of California Television. Ellen Sachs is both a tenured law professor at the University of Southern California and the recipient of a MacArthur Genius Award. She is also the graduate of the Yale Law School. She studied philosophy as a Marshall Scholar at Oxford University. And back in 1977, when she got her uh, BA degree from Vanderbilt, she graduated number one in her class. Ellen Sachs is an expert in mental health law and has written at length about the legal rights of the mentally ill, but she is not simply an expert. She is also someone who has struggled herself with serious mental illness. She knows firsthand what it's like to live with terrifying delusions, to be hospitalized against your will, and to be strapped down to a hospital bed and immobilized for hours on end. She described all of this in her 2007 memoir, which Time magazine recognized as one of the 10 best nonfiction books of that year. Her book was called The Center Cannot Hold My Journey Through Madness. Ellen Sachs, welcome to our Legally Speaking series. Wonderful to be here, Marty. Thank you. When you were diagnosed with chronic paranoid schizophrenia, uh, you were what, in your late 20s, early 30s? You know, I had broken down in my early 20s, but I got that diagnosis sort of mid-20s. Uh-huh. And your prognosis was described as grim, which meant, I think... Well, I had yeah. two different ones. One was very poor and one was grave. Oh, and and okay. what that means is that... Oh, you know, grave. Yeah, yeah. 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 Okay. Grim is a little bit grimmer okay. than grave. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, that I would not be able to live independently, let alone to work. Uh, so right. that was sort of Let alone predicted. have a career as an eminent scholar. And and good friends and a husband and a great life. So how do you explain how you were able to, in such a spectacular fashion, defy the conventional wisdom? Well, I don't think I, I was sort of a lone woman who, through sh- sheer strength of will, overcame odds. I had a lot of resources invested in my care. So I had... Uh, five-day-a-week psychoanalytic psychotherapy for decades and continuing. And I had excellent psychopharmacology. In the beginning, I resisted the meds. Now I accept them, and my life is much better. Mm -hmm. Uh, Wonderful family uh, and friends, very supportive, very kind, very helpful. Uh, A wonderful work environment. Um, I just love going to work every day. In fact, I go in seven days a week because reading and writing is one of my most favorite things, and that helps stabilize me. Um, So all those things together, you know, let me uh, have a better life than I was expected to have. In fact, my little brother used to say, even when I was a teenager, I was the most stubborn person he ever met, and maybe I was just an example of my stubbornness. Mm -hmm. You say I can't work, I'll show you. you So is it fair to describe your you as an outlier when it comes to the illness that you had? Probably. I don't really know what the stats are on how many people are high-functioning with my diagnosis. Mm-hmm. A lot of people say I'm unique. Uh, I'm not. I'm uh, engaged in two studies, one at USC and UCLA and one at USC and UCSD involving other, quote, high-functioning people with schizophrenia. And our, our LA project has two MDs, a PhD clinical psychologist, a JD, teachers, full-time students, full-time parents. There are other people out there. It's just the stigma is so great that they don't come out. I have a, a great platform because I have a tenured position at a law school, so my job's not endangered. And for some people, it may be more of a risk to come out. Mm-hmm. When you, uh, Before you published your memoir, very, very few people knew that yeah. you suffered from a mental illness. And it's understandable that uh, you would not tell a lot of people because right. there is this huge stigma attached to mental illness. Right. So, how do you? What convinced you after so long 
not to tell anybody, yeah. to, in essence, tell the world. You know, I just thought about it over many, many years, and my best friend Steve would talk about it with me and encourage me to do it. And I just, at some point, I thought, you know, this could help people. This could make a difference in some people's lives. It could give people hope. I really should do this. One of my friends, an emeritus professor of psychiatry at UCLA, said I should do it under a pseudonym. And I said, you know, that would send the wrong idea that this is just too awful to say out loud. Part of the point is to put a a, face, a human face on schizophrenia, on mental illness, mm-hmm. and to do it as myself and to own it and, and not hide from it or be ashamed. Is it fair to say that you wouldn't have done it without having gotten tenure first? Probably, yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think probably if there were no such institution as a, t- a tenure and I were in my, what was it, my 17th year here at USC, it's a great place. It's very nurturing. It's very uh, stimulating and caring. Yeah. So I probably would have done it anyway, I think, mm-hmm. uh, here, but it would have been a bigger risk. You wrote a book a few years before your memoir in which you observed that there was this huge stigma attached yeah. to mental illness, and you said in that book that one of the reasons there's a huge stigma is because people who are highly functional who have these illnesses right. do not come forward. Right. So when you wrote that, were you feeling at all guilty that you had forward yourself? Probably yet? a little bit. Uh-huh. Probably. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. I mean, the stigma is really horrific. I mean, as an example, one of my colleagues said after the Jared Loffner case, if he had been bleeding copiously from the nose, his parents would have taken him to the ER whether he wanted to go or not. There were a lot of red flags. Either they didn't see it, didn't know how to understand it, or were afraid of the stigma. But the consequence was disastrous. I mean, people, quite even quite a part of from people actually harming other people, people who don't get care suffer and they don't need to suffer it's an illness there's there is treatment available mm-hmm. so stigma is a real bad thing mm-hmm. you were what seven eight years old when you got your first hint that you, you may have you may have a mental illness or that something was different about you well i don't i don't think i would have been diagnosed as a childhood person right. with schizophrenia but right. i uh you know i had phobias i had obsessions i had night terrors um, yeah. i had a, a, a as you said when i was seven or eight i had my first period of disorganization it's, it sounds like it like you, you had kind of like an existential meltdown. Uh, <laughs> in a way. Yeah. Yeah, let, let me in read what you, you wrote uh, in your memoir. Most people know what it's like to be seriously afraid. And this this was after, I guess, your father snapped at you for some reason. Then right. you had this reaction. Right. Uh, and you say, but explaining what I've come to call disorganization is a different challenge altogether. Consciousness gradually loses its coherence. One center gives way. The me becomes a haze. And the solid center from which one experiences reality breaks up like a bad radio signal. Now, as, as you got older and your delusions became more elaborate, did this lack of centeredness uh, that you describe remain a constant? Oh, sure. I mean, it's mm-hmm. a, I call it, and it's called disorganization. There's a form of schizophrenia. There's paranoid schizophrenia, which I also have a touch of, and disorganized schizophrenia. And that's what I described as what disorganization feels like. It feels like your mind is a sandcastle with all the sand sliding away in the receding surf and nothing, no center to take things in mm-hmm. and make sense of them. And that's why I called Following Yates, my book, The Center Cannot Hold, mm-hmm. to kind of convey that experience. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You studied philosophy at Oxford, so I, I think did. it's fair to ask you one grand philosophical okay. question. And that is, uh, you know, having experienced mental illness, do you think that that gives you any unique insights into the nature of free will? Uh, is it real? Is it a biochemical illusion or yeah. something in between? It's a really, really hard question. Um, 
I think there's a lot of evidence that a lot of what we do is psychically determined, but we also feel like we have free will. in a sense, my coming to accept that there were certain things that were wrong with me that were out of my control uh, was a hard battle to win. And, and in a way, that's saying I'm not responsible for it. It's something that befell yeah. me or happened to me. Um, at the same time, you know, I also feel like I've made a lot of effort to have a good life and that you know, surely that those choices were mine and good choices to make kind of thing. So it's a real, yeah. it's a real and, tough and I question. I think your memoir kind of conveys a mixed message on this. On uh, the one hand, you just alluded a little while ago to your stubbornness. Exactly. And that suggests free you know, a right. free will kind of right. you know, take on, on, on how you were able to get through right. what you got through. Right. But on the other hand, uh, you also uh, talk about your struggles with trying to uh, uh, do without uh, antipsychotic medications, right. and in the end, you realize you couldn't do without right. those drugs, which right. suggests right. that you know you were kind of enslaved by your biochemistry right. to, to, to the point where you needed. It's sort of interesting a, a drug because it's sort of interesting because I I use, uh, here's an example of. I used to think that I'm, I'm not mentally ill for a variety of reasons, but one of the reasons was that I was choosing to believe what I believed and so on. Mm-hmm. And then I realized there was a time when I was on a drug called Navane, and a friend was on Navane in a support group, and she was complaining about how she was tapping her toes all the time. And I knew I was tapping my toes all the time. And she was on Navane, and I knew I was tapping my toes all the time, but I was just doing it. I wanted to do it. I did it. I could stop whenever I wanted to. I'd start again very quickly, but it was my choice. And then I switched drugs, and my toe tapping stopped. Mm -hmm. So you can kind of claim responsibility for something that's not really in your control. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, you you, you do explicitly uh, raise the question in your memoir uh, whether the brain is the same thing as the mind. Right. And, And you write, I had been taught all my life that intelligence combined with discipline could overcome any challenge. And mostly that belief had served me well. The problem was it assumed that the intelligence at hand was fully functional, fully capable, but I'd been told by experts that my brain had serious problems. Could I hang on to one while conceding that there was a big flaw in the other? So how do you exactly sort that out? How do you, how do you retain a, sel- a sense of self uh-huh. that's distinct from an illness that is right. in a profound way affecting not only how you view the world, but right. also, uh, it seems, your personality? How, how yeah. do you keep those things It's It's distinct? difficult. It's difficult. You know, it's sort of interesting because I struggled against having the diagnosis for such a long time. And the ironic thing is once that I accepted that I had the illness and I needed medication and therapy, it really came to define me much less. So it became sort of accident rather than essence. So I now think of myself as a person. Yes, I have schizophrenia. Yes, it affects my life. But I'm much more than the diagnosis. It took me a long time to get there. So talk a little bit more about that. How, 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 do you, how are you able to get to that point? Um, I think, you know, one thing was that when I, I struggled about medication for a long time, and when I finally got on a stable dose, it occurred to me that I had always thought that people had the same chaotic and violent and scary thoughts that I did. They were just better at hiding it. So yeah. I was like socially maladroit rather yeah. than ill. Yeah. And when I got on the new medication and stayed on it and it cleared my mind a lot, I realized that wasn't true. How do you know it's not true? 
How do I know it's yeah. not true? <laughs> well, yeah, you don't know. Yeah. Ultimately, you don't really know you what's were, in another person's actually, mind. Actually, you were diagnosed at one point by a, 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 a psychologist named Anthony Storr. Dr. Storr, yeah. And a uh, very eminent psychologist, written a number of books. I and think a psychiatrist and a psychologist. Is he a psychiatrist? Yeah, I think so. Okay. Yeah. But anyway, he wrote at one point uh, in one of his books, he said the dividing lines between sanity and mental illness have been drawn in the wrong place. The sane are madder than we think the mad saner. <laughs> That's a great line. Yeah. So, I buy that. Yeah, yeah. You do? I do. Okay. Yeah. So, <laughs> I do. But you also buy into the idea now that it's not just that you were lacking diplomatic skills. Right. Well, it's sort of not uncommon for people to think other people think the same way that they do. Right. Right. You know, like I I think people who say they like to exercise are just telling lies or, or fooling <laughs> themselves are. or whatever. Well, but that's the point. We assume yeah. that people feel yeah. and, and a lot of times they don't. Yeah. Yeah. You know, as you describe the, the sorts of delusions that you had uh, in your memoir, it, it does seem to me that there's a paradoxical quality to them. And, and what I mean by that is, on the one hand, there is the sense that you had of, of, of omnipotence. Right. That you could, you actually imagined in the throes of your delusions that you could kill people with your mind. Right. And in fact, in the throes of some of your delusions, you actually thought that you had killed people. I killed hundreds of thousands of people yeah. with my thoughts. But then on the other hand, you also had a sense of profound vulnerability. Yes. That people were trying to kill you. Right. Um, is, is this a typical pattern that's for pretty people uh, yeah. experiencing these sorts of episodes? I think that's pretty common. People are both afraid of their own violence and afraid of other people's violence. Uh -huh. um, it's pretty common. Uh-huh, uh-huh. It, it was during your... If I can interrupt for one second, yeah. speaking about feeling kind of grandiose... <laughs> My husband read a little bit when I showed him my memoir. There was a passage where I talked, where I was having delusions, and I said, "I'm God, or I used to be." And he wrote a marginal note: "Did you quit, or were you fired?" Uh -huh. And then he said, "Who would have the authority to fire God?" Uh -huh. so that was kind of funny. There's another quote that I had read: uh, the, uh, an eminent psychiatrist or psychologist, I don't remember which, quoted one of his patients uh -huh. who said, "You know, in my world, I'm omnipotent. In your world, I have to practice diplomacy." <laughs> That's a great line. And you kind of felt that way, didn't you? I did. I did, actually. I mean, one of the things that served me well having a very serious illness is I, even if I didn't have insight that it was an illness completely, I always knew what other people would think was crazy. Mm. And I didn't want to appear crazy, so I, either I wouldn't say it or if I couldn't not say it, I just stayed home. So that kind of social judgment served me well in terms of making myself Were you a professional able, like, world. In, in the throes of a, of a delusion to do what uh, what's called double bookkeeping? You know what I mean by that? Yeah. I think uh, not all the time, but sometimes, uh -huh. not all the time. I mean, at my worst, I would just be kind of sitting in bed listening to music and holding my head, afraid that it was going to explode. Mm -hmm. But I could be pretty symptomatic and still work. I mean, work has been an important part of my, you know, this, the package that keeps me sane and stable. It was during your first year at Yale Law School, I believe, right, that uh, you experienced the breakdown that led to the forced hospitalization in which right. you were forcibly restrained. Right. And I was wondering if you could talk about that experience. It sounded like it was a terrifying experience it for you. It was devastating. Uh, being in restraints over 10 hours is, is uh, extremely painful, for mm -hmm. one thing. And just not moving makes your muscles ache. There's a terrible feeling of degradation and helplessness uh, and pain, and you don't know when it's going to end, and you don't know what to do to get out, and it goes on and on, and it's just 
very traumatic. So explain how, how you were having a breakdown and right. I think a, a, a professor drove right. you to the hospital, right? Correct, yeah. And, and, and uh, so talk about how so, you got there and... This was not my first time in a hospital. I've been hospitalized in England, but England is very much more humane in a lot of ways than mm-hmm. we are, and they haven't used full mechanical restraints for over 200 years. Anyway, I, my professor brought me to the ER. Um, I had made a, a belt out of television wire that I found on the roof, and I was doing like that, and the very nice kind of guard-type guy said, can I have that? I, I need to have that. And I said, mm. He said, please, I need it. I said, okay, here it is, but I'm not going to give you my six-inch nail in my pocket. Mm. And then the psychiatrist came, and he said, uh, I'd like the nail, and I said no. And he called security over and then motioned to the bed, um, and several people surrounded me, lifted me up, slammed me down on the bed, and tied my wrists and my ankles to the bed and then put a net over me so I couldn't move my body either. Mm-hmm. And it was devastating. It was terrifying. I, I didn't know that this kind of thing existed because I hadn't seen it in England. I never read about it. I never saw it. Um, and again, it's very painful, very degrading. Um, People actually die. Actually, there was, a, there was a series of articles in the Hartford Current uh, where they reported on some deaths, and the Harvard statistician estimated that every week in this country, one to three people die in restraints. Mm-hmm. So the question is, are we saving more people or losing more people by and how do they, restraints? How, how do they actually die? Sometimes they... Uh, um, aspirate their vomit or they have a heart attack or they strangle themselves struggling uh-huh. there are all sorts of different ways but it's it's a terrible thing and there's efforts underway to uh, reduce the use of restraints they've done it in Pennsylvania they've done it in Massachusetts in fact I have a new institute called the Sachs Institute for Mental Health Law Policy and Ethics here at USC and last year our subject was mechanical restraints mm. so we had a distinguished lecture event and we had a symposium and I have students and we're trying to get everything published and it's was very interesting to read kind of the current state of the art, which is efforts to reduce, but not everywhere. And you were restrained for it for the better part of three weeks, right? Well, no, no. I was the most I was restrained was twenty hours at a shot, but, but several I mean, over, times over, over three, three week period, period yeah. every, every day from two to eighteen hours mm-hmm. for three weeks. Then I went to another hospital. My behavior didn't change, and I stopped being restrained. And, and how were you behaving? Uh, I, you know, I might pace. Uh, anxiously or agitatedly. Um, I might say some a veiled threat, like just now I thought about hurting you. I wouldn't uh-huh. say I'm going to hurt you or yeah. I plan to hurt you, but I thought about it. Yeah. In psychoanalysis, you say those kinds of things out loud, but in hospitals, you shouldn't. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. So uh, you were in the hospital for how long? Well, in England, the first year was a month, the second year was four months, and then in America it was five months. Uh-huh. And it's been since 82, 83, which is, in a way, my most proud accomplishment to have stayed out of the hospital all those years. Mm-hmm. So after you got out of the hospital uh, in New Haven, you were able, after, a, 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 I guess, a year to continue your studies at Yale? There's actually a, a very funny story about that. So Yale had a policy that the director of university psychiatry should examine you, evaluate you, to see if you were ready to go back. Yeah. And like any good student, I looked him up. And this is before the internet, so I like was pulling books from the shelves. And there was an article that he had written: patients who, students who are uh, withdrawn from school for psychiatric reasons, questions you want to ask and answers you want to hear. Mm-hmm. So when I went into the interview, I knew all the questions. Oh, okay. <laughs> you had cheated. I, I had cheated. I had cheated. <laughs> I was a, like any good student, right? right? So yeah. what kinds of questions were they asking? 
Uh, I don't remember to tell you the truth. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Well, I do remember that the doctor suggested that I uh, take a year and work as a cashier somewhere. Uh-huh. I said I would think about it, and of course what I really thought was, you know, I've been a student all my life, I like it, I'm good at it, your time is flexible, that would be so much less stressful for me than a line of people demanding change. Right. So it's not like one size fits all. Um, One of the, interestingly enough, after you uh, came back to Yale, you published a paper in the Yale Law Journal. On restraints. On on the use of mechanical restraints. In fact, that was the name of the paper. The use of mechanical restraints in psychiatric hospitals. Right. Now, you, in that paper, gave no hint of what you had gone through. Actually, the little vignette at the beginning is about me. uh, But it wasn't revealed. It wasn't revealed. No, it wasn't. Oh, okay. In fact, there's another story about that that's really telling. So I went to one of my professors who had a training in psychiatry and told him I was working on mechanical restraints and must be so painful and degrading. And he said, Ellen, you don't understand. These people are psychotic. They don't respond to this as you or I would. They're uh-huh. different. Yeah, yeah. I didn't have the courage at that moment to say, well, no, they're not that different from me. Have you <laughs> talked to him since? He's passed away, actually. Oh, okay. Yeah. okay. I would have if... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, you uh, proposed a model statute in that paper, correct? I did. And, I did. and that was back in 1986. Correct. So I'm wondering, uh, you know, so many years later, are, are mental institutions uh, more judicious now about... I think they are. Immobilizing, strapping people down? A lot of places are, and as I say, a, a number of jurisdictions have made really concerted efforts to reduce restraints, and it turns out that they can, and it doesn't cost much more, and it doesn't raise the rate of injuries, and it's just so much the right thing to do. In fact, you're, the recommendations that you proposed in that paper, have many of them been adopted? Uh, some of them have. You know, I, I mentioned that I think if choices are equal, patients should be given a choice, and, and some of the new statutes incorporate that. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I also suggested the liability regime change, and as far as I know, that hasn't happened. You know, reading about how you were restrained uh, reminded me of, of something that happened to my own father. Oh. Um, he uh, went into the hospital. He was, I think, around 55 years old, uh-huh. you know, around my Not age. that old, my age, too. With, uh, with chest pains. Mm. And uh, they, you know, they hooked him up, uh-huh. and they told him he was having a heart attack. And his first reaction was a curious one. I, I believe the, he said bullshit. And then he started to get up and leave. Right. And, or tried to leave. Right. And he didn't get it very far because they physically restrained him. Wow. Um, Did they then tie him to the bed? Well, I don't know if they tied him to the bed, but they right. made sure he wasn't going anywhere. Right. right. And so, uh, of course, that's nothing like what you went through. But I think it, it kind of underscores the point that there are those situations when it makes uh, moral, if not legal sense, to ignore what uh, a patient wants. They want, yeah. and, and you don't disagree with that, do you? No, I don't. I, I'm not, I think there are limited occasions where coercion makes sense, either if someone's imminently dangerous or uh, if they don't understand what's going on, if they lack capacity. I mean, the deeper question here, it seems to me, is that do the mentally ill have a, a right to choose what kind of people they want to be, right. uh, even if their families and friends and doctors right. feel that that choice is being heavily influenced right. by the disease that they're right. suffering, the illness that they're suffering from? So you can almost think of it as different selves. There's a healthy self and yeah. there's the ill self. Yeah. And why, why, what gives us the authority to respect the healthy self and not respect right. the ill self? 
self. Right. The ill self has its own and, ideals and, and, and goals. And people with schizophrenia, for example, they, they, they do often exhibit an attachment to their delusional selves, right? Right. Right. So, right. And, and, and as you point out in your book, doctors and lawyers yeah. tend to approach that question very differently. Totally, right? yeah. yeah. Psychiatrists We're, think of it as an illness that requires medication and therapy, and, and then you'll be restored to the real you, whereas right. lawyers are more... Libertarian. Uh, more libertarian, yeah. more wanting to leave it up to the person, him or herself, what, what they value and what they want. And if it's unwise in their point of view, in the lawyer's point of view, well, that's too bad because they have their own perspective. You note that as a group, uh, the mentally ill are no more dangerous than people in the general population. Was there ever a point in your illness that you felt that you were dangerous? I, I would say one thing first, which is that uh, people think mentally ill people are dangerous, and some, some are, but the people who are really dangerous are substance abusers. They're the ones who commit most of the crimes. Mm -hmm. But I think people are more frightened of mental illness. They sort of understand drinking too much or whatever. So that mentally It's less exotic. Are, I, I guess. <laughs> I guess. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, did you feel at any point that you were dangerous? Yeah, I think I think I was. Mm -hmm. I think uh, you know when I was in Oxford and not on medication, I was uh, 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 had very violent thoughts and fantasies, and even carried a box cutter and a serrated kitchen knife in my purse to my sessions with my analyst. And, yeah, and she this knew is that. the analyst that you refer to as Mrs. Jones. Mrs. Jones, yeah. And in your memoir, you describe how you would stop. You, you first of all, you were very attached to this. Woman, very attached. But at the same time, at one point. You you felt that she was intended to hurt you, right. and so you found yourself walking by kitchen stores, right. staring at knives. Right. And at one and point, axes. you um, you uh, went into a hardware store looking right. for an axe. Right. So let's just suppose, God forbid, that you bought an axe right. and ended up doing something really bad with it. Yeah. Um, you know, if you were in the United States uh, under our laws, uh -huh. is it more than likely that you would have been found not guilty by reason of insanity? Uh, yeah, because I had a lot of delusions about Mrs. Jones and about my safety and her safety, and I think there's a good chance that I would have been found but criminally the, insane. Uh huh. Even though, I mean, the insanity defense in this country is rarely used, extremely and it's, rarely, and it's also and it's even more rarely used successfully, right? And and more rarely used successfully uh, in a contested case. Mm -hmm. Some of the cases are by agreement with the prosecution. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, the stats are, are very different from what the public imagines. It's, it's very little used and even mm -hmm. less mm -hmm. often successful. I was once told by a psychiatrist that the actual wording of the delusion can have an impact sure. on right. whether or not someone is judged not guilty by reason of insanity. Yeah. So as an example, the question is, if the delusion that you had were true, would it justify what you did? So imagine someone has a delusion that his next-door neighbor is spreading rumors about him and kills him, versus his next-door neighbor just pulled a gun on him and was about to shoot him. So the second would be a delusion that would qualify for the insanity defense, but the first wouldn't. And you can kind of understand why, because even if it were true, it wouldn't excuse what the person did. Mm. That said, when someone's mentally ill, they're confused in their thinking quite a bit, and it's sort of hard to pin down exactly what they're thinking and fearing and so mm -hmm. on. Mm -hmm. But to the extent you can, the question is, you know, 
what the delusion excuse you if, it if one true. delusion says you know this guy's trying to kill me right and that would be a you know, a, a, a good delusion to have if you want to get a, a not guilty right. by reason of insanity finding. But right. let's say your delusion is saying, your, your voice, inner voices are saying to this person is evil and deserves to die. Right. How would that would would that sort of delusion work as uh, an insanity as part of an insanity defense? It's difficult to say. It could go either way. That kind of delusion. I think. Yeah. 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 Well, it's funny that the wor- the actual wording of a delusion I can know. make all the difference in the world where I you know. end up. There's also you know command hallucinations if you think that you're being commanded by God to kill someone that's usually a defense as well uh-huh. because you're not doing anything wrong in your own eyes just as you're not doing anything wrong if you think someone's trying to kill you and you defend yourself so to speak most states in this country uh, have a McNaughton type rule right. on, on, on the insanity defense it's, right. it's a cognitive test right. whether you know the difference between right and wrong right. I, I think it's very few states that have a volitional component right. uh, to their to their. I don't, I don't remember what the, what the breakdown is between those that have and don't have it but yeah there's the cognitive there's insanity no, defense. I think here in California, for example, there's, there's no, no irresistible impulse no, there's component. Not. There's not. Uh, no. Do you think there should be? Yeah, I do. I think. I mean, I think it's troublesome because it's hard to tell when a, a, an impulse was irresistible versus when not it's resisted. Simply not resisted. Yeah. 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 But I think there are times when people feel impelled to do stuff and can't control themselves, and that that should be, to the extent we believe it, uh, the basis for a defense. Mm-hmm. You mentioned the uh, the, the uh, Jared Lee Loeffner case. Right. Uh, Loeffner, of course, was the very disturbed young man who went on a shooting spree in Arizona last January, uh, killed six people, and, uh, wounded 13, including Congresswoman uh, Gabrielle Giffords. Soon after Loeffner's arrest, the lawyers started fighting over whether right. or not to allow prison officials right. to forcibly medicate Loeffner. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the end, the judge ruled that he could be forcibly medicated. Do you think the judge made the right decision? I, you know, I don't know enough about the facts. If, if I mean, typically you would allow medication if someone's dangerous or gravely disabled in, in the prison system. That's Washington versus Harper allows that for prisoners. It's a more controversial question when and whether you should be able to medicate someone to render him competent to stand trial. Yeah, or competent to be severely punished. Right. Or executed. Right. You, there is a competence requirement for execution. So if right. you don't appreciate that you're about to be killed for something that you did, uh, you can be spared execution until you're restored to your understanding. Right. Some so, people think that's kind of crazy. Because What, are you going to make someone better and really appreciate how horrible it is to die and then kill yeah. them? Isn't it more humane to love? I don't think so, actually. I think, you know, I think that uh, being put to death while you're insane is kind of cruel. More cruel than being made. I think so. For, to be forcibly treated. Right. To be competent enough to appreciate. Right. What's happening to yeah, you? Yeah, you know, I really don't have an opinion on whether on that medication issue. I really. I have mean, to leave think about mental health aside. You right. know, there are people who become seriously ill on death row. Right. And then the doctors come in and, you know, take heroic measures to right. make these people well again, so that they can execute them later. Well, there it's I mean, even there are even worse things than that. Like yeah. someone attempts suicide the day before their uh, their uh, uh, um, execution, and they're revived and. That's not a lot. You can't yeah, commit no, suicide. No, no. They revive you and then kill you the next day. You right. Mean? Well, and I guess that underscores how ritualistic right. it all is. Right. But the idea of, 
treating people, forcing treatment on someone uh, for the sole purpose of making that person competent enough to be seriously punished, you don't have a problem with that? Uh, it's again, it's an issue that I need to think about more. I think it's a difficult question. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I mean, I think in the execution context, I mean, first of all, there are terrible dilemmas for the psychiatrist, you know, trying to give someone drugs to make them well so they can be killed. I mean, that just really seems to stress kind of professional psychiatric ethics. Mm -hmm. um, I basically think if, you know, I basically think that people with serious mental illness shouldn't be executed anyway. They should, shouldn't be death penalty eligible. You know, we've, we've now said that you can't execute people with mental retardation and people under the age of 18 when they commit their crime. I think people with serious mental illness, even if they don't meet the insanity defense, can be so confused and, and deranged and unclear thinking that they should you know, not be death penalty eligible either. Mm-hmm. 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 Let's talk a little bit about uh, multiple personality disorder. Oh, right. Uh, you uh, wrote a book about that called Jekyll on Trial back in, I guess it was published in 1997. Correct. And, With my friend Steve Benkey. Right. Yeah. And um, first of all, just to be clear, schizophrenia is not the same no. as a multiple personality disorder. Some people think it is. Yeah. Schizophrenia is split personality mm -hmm. or multiple personality, but it's actually a totally different category of illness. Multiple personality disorder, which is now called dissociative identity disorder, um, is a dissociative disorder, and schizophrenia is a psychotic disorder. Um, they're just two completely different kettles of fish. Right. Schizophrenia involves being out of touch with reality. Multiple personality involves having splits in your mind. You know, there has been, and I guess there continues to be, yeah, controversy uh, a rather about, heated yeah. debate over whether multiple personality disorder uh, is a real medical condition, right? right. Um, but but whether or not it is real, I have the the, the sense that the ep, the MPD multiple personality disorder epidemic right. that we saw in the eighties and nineties right. when tens of thousands of right. people were told by their therapists that right. they were suffering from that illness right. that 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 is now viewed as something of an embarrassment if right. not you know just a full-blown scandal by the mental health establishment that in part staked its credibility on the authenticity of that epidemic do you agree with Oh, I think that probably in some ways for a time uh, MPD or DID was overdiagnosed or actually even created in patients, quote, iatrogenically. Yeah, iatrogenically means, means created by, by their a doctor. therapist. Right. Yeah. So I think that happened. At the same time, I think there are some real cases, and it's a mistake to say because there was overdiagnosis, it doesn't exist. Mm -hmm. And I was pretty much persuaded. You know, I watched about 100 hours of videotapes of people being interviewed on, the, on a diagnostic instrument. And I was very persuaded by some of the reality. Like one guy was saying, you know, my boyfriend says that uh, I get up in the middle of the night and I say I, I call myself by a different name and I act really scary. And he said, and my boyfriend taped me doing that the other night, but he must have drugged me because I would never have acted that way. Mm -hmm. Or there was a woman who said, you know, I'm a therapist, um, you know, and... Uh, you know, I have a, an active practice and I'm fairly happy. And she said, and some people say I have multiple personality disorder, which is just totally insane. And then she flips. That jerk doesn't even know that I exist. You know, so seeing things that were pretty persuasive to me, um, mm -hmm. you know, again, uh, you know, acknowledging that there has been some overdiagnosis. Mm. 
Somebody, I have a funny story. Yeah, go ahead. So I, one of the things I did when I wrote my book is I wanted to get familiar with what the disorder looked like. So as how'd I you said, how did you get interested? How did you get interested? You know, in I was walking to lunch one day, my first year here at USC, and one of my colleagues saw a newspaper article about Ross Carlson who had killed his parents, and I just thought, this is interesting. You know, intersects kind of psychology, philosophy, law. So I just started this, reading about and this it. guy had multiple personality yeah, disorder. Yeah, uh-huh. yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. He killed his school teacher parents, and in the end, he ended up dying of leukemia. Okay, it's kind of a sad story. Yeah, but uh, so as I was saying, I I, was, I watched the videotapes of the patients, and I there was a ward in L.A. Um, at. Uh, I forget the name of the hospital, but uh, um, they had a ward for people with dissociation, so I went once a week for six months and spent a few hours with, with the patients. The first patient I interviewed individually, lovely person, very sweet, very committed to treatment. She's not someone who was getting a lot of secondary gain about being in the hospital. And she reported that she had, you know, in the last couple of months gotten married. And she said, I'm mid-20. That's terrific. Congratulations. She said, yes, my our, our um, anniversary, our uh, engagement lasted uh, for two years because my husband insisted on getting consent of all of the altars before he would marry mm-hmm. me. Mm-hmm. I thought that was a touching and lovely story. That, that, yeah, I'll show you how my mind works. Does that mean, you know, when he when, when this gentleman wants to have sex with this exactly. woman, he's got to, exactly. you know, that, that's, that's it's hard enough point. with yeah. one, you know, many yeah. times. Yeah. yeah. There was actually a criminal case. <laughs> there was a criminal case where a guy meets a woman at a party and she reveals that she has multiple personality disorder and that her mischievous, fun-loving personality is named Jennifer and he calls on her house the next night, calls on her at her house the next night. And she's in the car with him, and he parked, and he says, you know, can I make love to Jennifer? Oh, is Jennifer there? Can I make love to Jennifer? So they had sex under the watchful eye of a little child named Sarah who reported it to the police. I know this. This is Wisconsin. P- yeah, P- Peterson was a defendant's name. I don't remember the name. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and so, and this woman had like 47 personalities. Okay. At least it was claimed that yeah. she did. And, uh, yeah, so what do you make of that case? You know, it's a difficult case because, as you say, what is it for someone with multiple personality to have capacity to consent to sex, right? Right. Do you have to have everybody agree? Right. Is it enough that one competent person agrees? If that competent person is sort of the fun-loving one, well, people... You know, play you know, trade on people's vulnerabilities all the time, or, yeah. or whatever. So, I, well, but I but I do think that taking advantage of someone you know to be unwell is kind of unfortunate at the best. So at then, best. as a general rule, can people with you know this disorder consent to something like marriage or sex or yeah, or, or sign a contract so in my book i talk about the civil context a little bit um mm-hmm. and i think it's you know complicated um part of me feels like in the context of say accepting medication if one competent author says yes that's enough um part of me feels like uh uh what if that competent altar is uh, Jehovah's Witnesses and saying no to blood transfusion and everybody else wants to live? So just having a competent altar maybe not not enough in some context. So maybe you want to have an unconscionability rule. I mean, it's a difficult issue. I don't really know, right. know what the answer is. Right. Paul McHugh, the director right. of psychiatry at Johns Hopkins, I guess more or less a critic of, totally. of, of, of MPD, he yeah. said, when we all look back on the MPD epidemic in this country, we will be dumbfounded by the gullibility of the public in the late 20th century and by the power of psychiatric assertions to dissolve common sense. 
you don't you don't agree. I don't agree. Uh huh. But aren't there those situations where an illness can kind of become an epidemic through? I don't know. It's kind of like almost becomes a so, it's like a social contagion. And a, an example sure. of that, like the, the 19th century, there was something called uh, mad traveler's disease. I never heard of that. That's this is where you know one guy walked off in a fugue oh, state right, right, right. and ended up somewhere else and supposedly right. didn't have any memory of his former life, and it triggered this epidemic where everyone started walking away <laughs> from their lives. Yeah, no, certainly. I mean, there's there are contagion effects. I mean, things like self mutilation, you know, mm-hmm. are common, more common now, probably because there's a lot of publicity or eating disorders or whatever, there are kind of waves of, you know, and sort of raises interesting questions about the nature of mental illness, if if it can be created in that way and and that kind of thing. I mean, there has been, it's been observed that every culture has its idiom of distress. Right. Um, so hysteria, yeah. Freud's day, but, it's yeah. very uncommon today. But right, uh, borderline personality disorder is very common today. But that's you know relatively new diagnosis in the last what fifty years or mm-hmm. something like that. So mm-hmm. that there are diagnostic trends and kids with bipolar illness. You know, some people think it doesn't exist. I am actually working on a book with a manic, a bipolar lawyer uh, who wrote a book about her childhood bipolar. Um, and she made her first suicide attempt when she was five or six. Mm-hmm. You know, I think there are some who are genuinely, but maybe it's being overdiagnosed now or mm-hmm. whatever. Mm-hmm. So in your book about multiple personality disorder, you allude to cases in which accused murderers or rapists with MPD mm-hmm. claim that only one or two of their many personalities have any knowledge of mm-hmm. or any involvement in the mm-hmm. crimes that they've been accused of. And your position, as I understand it, is that if the MPD is real, uh, then these defendants should never be made to go to prison. Uh, unless all or virtually all of their alters knew about it and acquiesced in the crime. Mm-hmm. And for me, that would be either they participated or they could have stopped it and they didn't, which is different for different people. Um, and the, the funny thing is when I first proposed this, I thought you know most people with MPD would be exonerated. But then I realized that many, many, many of the cases, all the personalities took, took uh, part. So most people with multiple personality who commit crimes are men, just as most people who commit crimes are men. Men with MPD have many fewer alters than, on average, than women with MPD. And a lot of times they they participate. So an example is uh, a case, uh, gosh, I forget her her name, but she she had... uh, um, her name was Marie Moore. She had a Marie Moore personality and a Billy Joel personality. I don't know where that came from. but mm-hmm. And she and Billy Joel held hostage and ended up participating in the beating death of a, of a kid. And, and they held hostage of several, several kids and then killed one of them. Um, and But, you know, both Marie Moore and Billy Joel knew about the crime. Marie Moore would pretend to be getting phone calls from Billy Joel uh, saying what their daily discipline would be. And when the police were suspicious, um, Ms. Moore deflected their inquiries. So she participated in the crime. She was an accomplice. So you've got two personalities both participating. Mm-hmm. I think that person should be found guilty. She probably you know, has some mitigation available, but it shouldn't be an insanity defense based on her multiple personality disorder. And a lot of times the criminal defendants, all the authors do participate. Mm-hmm. Okay, so say if all the personalities are participating in a crime, right. 
the person is convicted right. and say after the conviction, another personality, another personality pops, pops up. up. Yeah, that's what a good you, question. What do you do then? I mean, I think this is one of those line drawing things again. I think you just say, you know, sorry, <laughs> you're in. You were you were responsible. Really? Because you make you analogize this to uh, conjoined twins. Right. You know, if one of your twins shoots somebody. Right. Uh, See, the thing that I'm concerned about is just too much the possibility of malingering, just generating, fabricating this personality, well, which so, is also true at the front right, end. Right. But, right. Yeah. So how do you draw? How do you draw the line? Yeah. You got me up against a wall. <laughs> <laughs> well, what about? Well, then the other the other issue is if they're not if it's not fair to put them all in prison if not all of them are guilty is it fair to put them all in a hospital if not all of them have mental illness? Right. And, and, and not all of them are dangerous. And right. that's you know that's a good question. Well, I guess the answer would have something to do with the hospital being a place right. for treatment and right. the prison being a place for punishment. Right. So right. it's I think it's it's fairer to put the innocent personalities in a treatment facility right. than to put them in a punitive exactly. uh, environment. Exactly. Um, so, okay, so what happens when that innocent personality pops up after the crime has been committed? And we believe it's genuine. Yeah, we, let's say we believe it's genuine. Uh, I think we, we still have you. Still have you. <laughs> still have you. Do uh, multiple personalities need multiple lawyers? <laughs> Yeah, and what is it for them to be competent and, at the same and trial? Does, and does each one have, uh, you know, and, and if one lawyer is more expensive than the other, I mean, how's it can all sort out? <laughs> there was actually, when I was working on multiple personality disorder, there was an article in a local Beverly Hills newspaper that I ran across in which a French lawyer was suing his other personalities for using his money, uh-huh. <laughs> using up his How money. How did that work? I never heard what the outcome was, <laughs> but... Do you have any idea how many criminal defendants have invoked MPD as a defense? Oh, a pretty small number. I don't know the exact number, but uh-huh. it's a hard idea? case to win because most people are skeptical. Right. So, I mean, would it surprise you if like more than a dozen have mounted defense and have, were successful with it? Uh, oh, yeah, sure. Yeah. I would be surprised if more than two or three were successful. Really? But in terms of invoking it, you know, I, you know, 10, 20, something like that. Yeah. Not a lot, not a lot, large yeah. number. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I think when you, uh, reading your book about multiple personality disorder, a couple things occurred to me. Number one, you know, it's hard not to be overwhelmed by a sense of the bizarreness of it. Yeah. And the second thing that occurred to me was that, you know, when you look at our criminal justice system, you know, it, it subscribes to very conventional yeah. uh, notions of responsibility right. and free will. Right. This and totally, so how does yeah. that system get its arms around yeah. what you're talking about? Well, um, it's the reason the insanity defense is so often invoked and mm-hmm. because it's so often unsuccessful and sometimes can backfire. Um, so... Um, I think the disorder itself is more understandable. I mean, it's sort of got this exotic, you know, kind of florid kind of quality to it. But the basic mechanism is, you know, a little kid is being hurt by someone she loves, 
and she makes it happen to her and not to me. She splits away. It's happening to her and not to me. And it's a very common response to trauma dissociation. So like a lot of rape victims report that they went up to the ceiling and was, were looking down on themselves being raped. That's another form of dissociation. Mm-hmm. It's a very common response to trauma. With a little kid, when it happens when you're really young and haven't had time to consolidate a personality, you can have the splintering that looks like multiple personality disorder. You know, it seems to me whether or not MPD is real, your discussion of it, I think, does raise broader questions. For example, let's say someone commits a very serious crime and ends up getting a life sentence. And then, say, five or six years into the sentence, this person has a dramatic, shows a dramatic transformation, say, a a born-again kind of conversion. It seems to me, under your logic uh, that you apply to MPD cases, uh, wouldn't we have to discontinue the the punishment of this person? Because it's a different person. Yeah, because in a more than trivial sense, the person that committed the crime no longer exists. Right. No, I think that's a very good point. And I think, you know, uh, I guess I think in the same way that if someone develops MPD, once they've been convicted, they should stay in prison, that if someone gets better, two things. The difference between the born-again person and, and his past person is probably less significant than the difference between alters. They have memories of e- each other, and, you know, they con- consider each other the same person and, and that kind of thing. Whereas MPD, there are these, like, amnesia barriers cordoning off some of the personalities um, and they don't feel like one person and, and, and that kind of thing. Um, so they identify as different selves and not just parts of a different self or, or a person who's been transformed. So I think the way we would talk about the person who's been transformed is a person who's been transformed, not a new person. Whereas with MPD, there's a stronger case for saying they really are different personalities or people. But or doesn't there, isn't there, with many of these people, a host that uh, sort of underlies all the personalities? Well, it does, there's a host. All that really means is there's a personality that's in charge. Whatever personality is in charge most of the time mm-hmm. is called the host. And it can vary from time to time, and they can last longer or shorter periods of time and, and, and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, when I first started working on this, I thought one of the things I thought was, you know, maybe the rule should be only if the host commits the crime is the person guilty, because the host is the person. And in fact, there's a case like that called Denny versus Denny, Denny Schaffer, right. uh, where the court says if the host, unless the host commits the crime, the person's not guilty by reason. And you of thought insanity. that was a meaningless distinction. I think the host concept is not that robust of a concept. It's kind of just a practical way of thinking about the person. So whatever's in, whatever personality is in control, most of the time it can vary from time to time. They can be in existence for shorter or longer lengths of time mm-hmm. and so on. But basically the thing that moved me was that all person-like alters, there are transient personalities and there are fragments, but all person-like alters have as much claim to be the person as the host personality. They're really the same concept. I asked you before whether, you know, the person that, you know, undergoes that born-again conversion, right. you're saying that there's there's enough integration there that it's still one person. Right. Uh, and so you would make... But actually, I'm fairly tempted if someone really undergoes a radical personality transformation and so on, that maybe they should have some, you know lenience or, or mercy or well, what about like a, a juvenile that gets a life sentence right. I, mean, right. uh, I mean there's I think an argument to be made that you know 
people right. who are locked up as teenagers, right. uh, as much older people, are different people. Yeah. Uh, it's all, well, I don't know if I would call them different people, but it's certainly the case that people who are young have less capacity and less ability to control themselves and less ability to understand the implications of their behavior than people who are older. And I think that's yeah. why we have the juvenile justice system and, and don't penalize juveniles as much. And as I said, again, we don't execute people who commit their crime before the age of 18. Uh, but you're right. You if someone commits a, yeah, I know. <laughs> I know. Someone commits a crime, you know, when they're 17. That's yeah. really horrific. You know, you again, we have the opportunity of treating them as adult and keeping them in. But it's it's a harder choice than someone who's older and does the same thing. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, reading that book on uh, MPD that you wrote, it just reminded me how you know squishy these notions like personal yeah. identity yeah. and personality can yeah. become. The more yeah. and more you you look at it yeah i mean you very spontaneously had a existential meltdown at, at the age of seven right but then there are these sophisticated philosophers who right. you know think about like like derek parfit right think about personality Person, yeah. and an identity and they kind of it seems to me arrive at that same sense of uh oh, that's uh, so interesting of, of incoherence on that's these so topics interesting. it's sort of when i think i actually had a, co- a colleague who was visiting here um who's both a philosopher and a, and a lawyer as a law professor. And we were kind of noting that a lot of the things philosophers believe or play with are things that mentally ill people really believe. Yeah. So philosophers you know, say you can't prove the existence of the external world, but no philosopher lives as if there is no external world. Well, some mental patients do. Uh-huh. They have a psychotic belief that the world has come to an end. And they don't interact with the world. So on the one hand, it's kind of an interesting and you know, challenging kind of philosophical problem. On the other hand, actually lived, it's, it's a severe yeah. life problem. I mean, didn't Wittgenstein see a very close connection between mental illness and philosophy? Did he? I, I'm not aware yeah. of his work on that. Yeah. But it doesn't surprise me. There's... Well, there's and this, then I, you yeah. know, I, I, I uh, wrote a, uh, a paper about uh, the Schraper case. Schraper was a German judge who had a breakdown, and right. he wrote his memoir and this, Freud wrote a this, case study. Yeah, and I Daniel Paul, Paul Schraper. Yeah, wow, good, yeah. good yeah. memory. And uh, and I wrote a paper about uh, Schraper as well. What were he, we talking about? Well, oh yeah, yeah. It so, doesn't matter. Yeah. <laughs> so the the thing is that he. Um, you know, he wrote this really wacky memoir. You yes. Know. Uh, he was being transformed Did by you, the rays you, you of read God. It. I read the memoir. Yeah. Transformed so, by the rays of God to yeah. become a woman and bring forth a new race of man and woman. Yeah. Which, by the way, when I was on the teaching market and speaking to, to Notre Dame and they asked me about this paper, I said that. And one of the persons, a nun, said, what's wrong with that? <laughs> <laughs> But um, he, he, so his memoir is totally wacky. It's way off the wall. Right. Even though it's sort of like a lot of the old philosophers' cosmologies, except it was very self-referential, but it was in the same kind of vein. And then at the end, he appended a legal brief to get himself out of the hospital, which was completely lucid, yeah. completely coherent. And it was just so interesting to... When you read that memoir, did you identify... I did. Because a lot I of did. the delusions, I mean, you didn't imagine yourself... Being transformed. Being transformed yeah. into a man, but yeah. the paradoxical quality of the delusions, you know, you know uh, vacillating between omnipotent and profound vulnerability. A Absolutely. lot of that yeah. is in your memoir. Absolutely. Yeah, it really resonated with me. Let's uh, change the subject entirely okay. and, and talk about 
the connection between genius and mental illness. It's long been suspected that there is a connection. Um, and indeed, you know, when you read the biographies of artists right. and novelists and scientists, I don't know right. if most of them, but <laughs> I certainly most, a, but a healthy percentage of them, right. <laughs> you know, have, have struggled with uh, yeah, a mental illness of one sort or another. Uh, well, actually, uh, Kay Jameson, who, whom I've met and really think highly of, wrote a great memoir called uh, um, Unquiet Mind. But her first book was called Touch with Fire, and it was about all the famous bipolar people in history who've yeah. been creative geniuses and artists and so Less on. So with schizophrenics. Much less so with schizophrenics. I mean, typically with schizophrenia, your first year or two with the disorder, your IQ points go down. There's no correlation between high IQ and schizophrenia. High correlation with low socioeconomic class could be downward drift, could be just more stressful to be poor. Um, but people with schizophrenia typically aren't the ones. You know, you've got your exceptions like John Nash. Right. Although Nash actually made his discoveries before he became ill, so I'm not really sure that his illness facilitated his discoveries. Mm-hmm. Maybe he was getting ill or whatever. Mm-hmm. There is, you know, the kind of out-of-the-box thinking that you might get with a mental illness, and sometimes that's productive and sometimes it's damaging. Do you th- feel that your illness has in any way facilitated your creativity? Uh, you know... I think I might have been a little bit more flexible, like with this idea that multiple personality personalities could be people by the best criteria of personal identity. I mean, that's sort of a very, you know, kind of avant-garde or, or quirky or eccentric way to think. Um, and I think it, it makes some sense. And so maybe thinking out of the box made me think of that, and I wouldn't have. For the most part, I think, you know, I, my illness fights against my creativity and my productivity. And my productivity and creativity fight against my illness because when I'm working, I can usually keep the bad stuff to the periphery. It's sort mm-hmm. of very uh, therapeutic for me to, to use my mind, so to speak. But when you were fighting uh, the idea of being dependent on these antipsychotic drugs, uh-huh. your concern was that they undermine your authentic self. Yeah. And so was that tied into any sense of creativity that uh, no I, I know people think if I take medication it's going to take away my creativity I never really thought that for me I think the main thing was the quote as we say in the field narcissistic injury of having an, a mental illness and needing medication and so I used to say you know I don't want medication because I don't want to use a crutch and now I say, you know, if my foot were broken, I'd gladly use a crutch. Aren't my neurotransmitters entitled to his gentle treatment? Mm-hmm. So I've sort of gotten over the shame of having a mental illness and needing treatment. And that was a big thing in my therapy. Can you describe to me, you know, what it's like to live with your brain now? Uh, pretty much like what it's like to live with most people's brains who, who do kind of creative or intellectual work and have important people in their lives and mm-hmm. you know I think I think in many ways I'm fairly normal now except I have these transient thoughts and I have periods of two or three days you know several times a year when I kind of fall off the cliff um, but for the most part I think I'm pretty healthy mm-hmm. I think I'm probably healthier than many of my neurotic colleagues well, there you <laughs> even go. though I have a psychosis back to the same yeah right, right. yeah well, Professor Sex, it was really uh, just a treat talking to you today. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Marty. I enjoyed talking to you as well. Thanks. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.